You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, It's Tuesday, April 28th, and today, as you're listening to the Savage Lovecast, which you listen to every Tuesday, the Supreme Court of the United States is hearing arguments in a challenge to state bans on same-sex marriage that could result in legal same-sex marriage coming to all 50 states. Uh, it's legal in 37 states right now, and some states are digging in. Alabama, fuck you. But we've got it in 37 states. We could get it in 50, and we are really this is it. It's really down to the wire right now. This is a huge and hugely important day in the struggle for LGBT civil equality. And I want to thank everyone who's brought us to this point. Mary Bonotto, Roberta Kaplan, Evan Wolfson, Lambda Legal, Freedom to Marry, Andrew Sullivan, John Corvino, EJ Graff, writers, lawyers. We wouldn't be anywhere without our lovely lawyers all fighting over the last 30 years to do what we were told was impossible to legalize same-sex marriage in the United States. And it's exciting, but it's not what I'm going to talk about at the top of the show today. There's going to be plenty of time to talk about this because the Supreme Court isn't going to issue a decision today. They're just going to hear arguments, and then we're going to hear a lot of arguments about those arguments over the next few months while the Supreme Court makes up its mind, and we will find out in June. The Supreme Court releases most of its major and most of its most important decisions in late June which means we will probably find out at Pride. It's going to make for a great Pride or a not-so-great Pride. We'll see. What I'm going to talk about at the top of today's show, of course, is Bruce Jenner, who came out in a really uh, very well-done interview on ABC News last Friday night, uh, conducted by Diane Sawyer. Uh, kudos to Diane Sawyer and her whole team who put that special together. It was so much less exploitative and sensationalistic than I think a lot of us in LGBT land feared it might be considering network news, considering the Kardashian connection, considering all of it. It was just sensitive and smart and a terrific primer or primer. I'm never sure how to pronounce that word on uh, trans issues. And as uh, I believe Jenny Boylan pointed out on CNN later, now America knows they know someone who's trans. 70, 80% of all Americans know someone who is gay or lesbian or bisexual uh, they always knew us. People always knew gay, lesbian, and bisexual people. They just didn't know they knew them because most gay, lesbian, and bi people weren't out. But now most of us are and people know us and that has created this sea change in public attitude towards LGB civil equality. But most Americans, only 7% of Americans, know somebody who's trans. And what Bruce Jenner accomplished that night was Bruce Jenner, who's been a pop culture figure for 40 years became the trans person that most Americans now know. He put a face on these issues. Yes, I called him he. Because, as Glad has pointed out, that is the pronoun that Bruce Jenner, who also still is going by Bruce Jenner, would like us to use for the time being. He's not yet let us know what his pronoun preference is, but for the moment, it's he. And this, this caused a lot of trouble on Twitter, right? Caused... Not just me, but a lot of people trouble because the Twitter thought police were out in force after the interview, scalding and burning and throwing up on and blowing up at anybody who called Bruce Jenner he, him, his. 
in the wake of his coming out as trans. And he did. He came out as trans. And the interview, that wasn't the only problem in that interview for people who wanted to address this issue appropriately and sensitively in its wake. Because not only did Bruce Jenner come out as trans and then request that people continue to use a masculine pronoun for the time being, here's what Glad had to say about it. At this time, Bruce Jenner has not requested that a new name or pronoun be used. Therefore, we are respecting his wishes and will continue to refer to Jenner by his current name and with male pronouns. Glad has trans people in, on the board. Glad is exquisitely sensitive to trans issues. And here's Glad saying we're to call Bruce him his – use masculine pronouns. Call him Bruce for now until we hear from Bruce about what Bruce wants. That wasn't the only mindfuck that Bruce Jenner treated us to uh, in the wake of his interview. He also had this to say. Jenner has never been sexually attracted to men and he wanted to make that clear to viewers that gender identity and sexual identity were separate things, reported the Associated Press. I am not gay, Jenner said. We just come out as a woman, remember? I am, as far as I know, heterosexual. I've always been with a woman raising kids. So Jenner comes out as a woman and then insists that he's not a homosexual because he's a woman who's always been in relationships with other women. Having a hard time figuring out how to address that particular wrinkle in the interview. Also, at the end of the interview, toward the end of the interview, Bruce Jenner came out as a conservative Republican and slightly teabaggy, actually, where he cited the Constitution, that he values the Constitution. That's why he's a conservative Republican. I heard from a trans friend that said, that sounds kind of like teabagger shit. Which is ironic. You know, I'm a Republican and I'm a conservative Republican because I love the Constitution as if liberals and progressives in the Supreme Court today are not citing the 14th Amendment of our beloved and lovely Constitution as an argument for legalizing same-sex marriage because it is constitutional. 14th Amendment, equal protection under the laws for all citizens. LGBT Americans are citizens deserving of equal protections under the law because of the Constitution. We liberals, we like the Constitution too. So loving the Constitution – it's not enough. It's not an argument enough to say to, to distinguish yourself from other people politically. We all love the Constitution, right? And that kind of blew my mind. Like this interview is great. It was so great. And yet these three landmines that Bruce Jenner set in the pads of everyone who wants to talk about his coming out as trans and the issues that it raises – the pronoun thing, which excites so many people on Twitter. I had people blowing up at me on Twitter for using masculine pronouns and I, would, I kept sending them the links to the glad statements and what Bruce wanted and then they would blow up at me some more and other people. I saw trans people blowing up at trans people for misgendering Bruce. So there's that landmine. Then there's a the landmine of Bruce Jenner is a woman who's only ever had relationships with women. Therefore, he's not gay. And then this, he's a conservative Republican. We have been talking on this show for a long time about what conservative Republicans are doing all across the country to trans people, these anti-trans bathroom bills that make the world a much more dangerous place than it already is for trans women in particular because they frame trans women, frame in both senses, you know, frame for a crime but also kind of create a, a, a frame culturally as a discussion they frame the conversation around this assumption that trans women are sexual predators who are sneaking into women's restrooms to assault women or just get off on peeing next to women. And this, this fuels a lot of anti-trans violence, this sense that trans women are dangerous sexual predators, which they are not. 
who are cisgendered women attacked by routinely and regularly cisgendered straight guys. And it's typically cisgendered straight male politicians who are pointing a finger at trans women and saying, oh, look, there are the real baddies, those women over there. Worry about them. And so it seems to me now that Bruce Jenner is out as trans. We've been through in the Republican – we've talked about this too. We've been through in the Republican nomination contest for president. All of the candidates being asked whether or not they would go to a gay wedding. And that was really interesting to watch because most of them said they would not. A few said they would go to the reception. But we went through that. Like all the Republican candidates had to go on the record about gay weddings and whether they would attend. Now, now it seems to me that the legitimate – Question: A legitimate question that should be put to all these right-wing batshit nutbags who are running for president is where Bruce Jenner, their fellow Republican, should pee. It's an entirely legitimate question because the person who gets the nomination, particularly if that person wins the election, but if they get the nomination, they become the de facto leader of the Republican Party and look around the country. Who's pushing these anti-trans toilet bills all over the country that is making an already dangerous world for trans women even less safe? Republicans. So the de facto leader of the Republican Party and the people auditioning to be the leader of the Republican Party should have to be asked that question, should have to answer for that. That's a Republican policy position that's being pushed by Republicans all over the country. So Marco Rubio, where should Bruce Jenner go to the bathroom on his way to vote for you if he ends up voting for you? Jeb Bush, where should Bruce Jenner go to the bathroom? Ted Cruz, where should Bruce Jenner go to the bathroom? These are questions. I know there's a lot of political reporters out there and campaign reporters who listen to my show. I'm talking to you guys and gals specifically right now. You can legitimately ask Ted Cruz, Rick Santorum, Mike Huckabee, Rand Paul, all of them, where should Bruce Jenner pee now that he's out as a trans woman who is – not a homosexual who has only relationships with other women and please use masculine pronouns for now. Where should he pee? Marco Rubio. We have a right to know where all you right-wing Republican assholes running for president stand on where Bruce should sit. All right. Coming up today on the podcast, we have the right Reverend Eugene Robinson here to answer a question. It's not every day that we have an Episcopal bishop on the Lovecast, but today is that day. Also on the Magnum, we have a rabbi having a very religious program today. We are going to come to Jesus with Reverend Gene, and then we're going to run from Jesus with Rabbi Jeremy. Today on the Lovecast, and now your calls. Hi, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old straight woman. I've been in a relationship for a little over two years now, um, and he's awesome. I love him so much. Oh, I've never had sex with a woman. Um, I've always only been with men, but I find myself when... I masturbate it's always to lesbian sex, which isn't often since our sex life is pretty good and we have sex like two or three times a week. But it's just so weird because I don't really have any desire to be with a woman. It's just whenever by myself, that's always my like go-to thing. And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that or like, I don't know. I don't want to break up with my boyfriend and, you know, risk it all to just have sex with a woman, but I'm like sort of curious. I just don't, I don't know, but I don't want to ruin anything with him. My only thought is you shouldn't necessarily have to break up with your boyfriend to have sex with a woman. If indeed you want to have sex with a woman at all, there are tons of complete total dykes out there who like watching 
gay porn. They're pretty vocal about it too. It's not something that lesbian gay porn aficionados are shy about sharing with the world. And you know, there's a conflict there, but it's not necessarily a conflict that you are obligated to resolve. This is just a wrinkle or quirk in your sexuality. There's something about dyke porn or lesbian fantasies that cranks you up, but you're totally satisfied with your boyfriend and you are straight identified and perhaps you are even straight, just like those lesbians who watch gay porn are actually lesbians. But something about this just plugs in for some reason. Now, you can spend the rest of your life trying to tease out what that reason is. You can rationalize. You can look back into your childhood or all of your life experience to try to uh, to pinpoint that pivotal moment or experience or stimuli or whatever it was that just snapped your erotic imagination onto this and what a waste of time that will all be. All of that effort and for what? You will still be turned on by lesbian porn. You will still be sitting on your boyfriend's dick. And again, you know, there are a lot of boyfriends out there who are not necessarily opposed to their girlfriends getting it on once or twice in their presence in a girl-girl-boy three-way with another woman. So you can have your fantasies, you can have your boyfriend, and hopefully you can have an open, honest conversation with your boyfriend about your fantasies, about lesbian porn, about these thoughts, and who knows, perhaps one day you'll be able to have the boyfriend and have the same-sex sexual experience as well. Hi, Dan Savage and the Tech Savvy at Rift Youth. Um, had a question um, about the etiquette of straight people at Pride. This weekend, Pride is in Phoenix, and I was thinking about going with some friends. We're all straight. Um, I went to Pride in Sydney, Australia, back in 2009 when I was young and didn't really understand or the depth of it. Just curious as, as to what you think, you know, as the straight person going to Pride, what should be the etiquette and what we should do? Don't eat the pussy at Pride. It's not for you. Unless it's by pussy, in which case, go crazy. You don't have to worry. Pride is something that you know, Pride Parade, particularly the Sydney Mardi Gras Pride Parade, which I've been to and I loved, it is in many ways a manifestation of queer people in the streets making themselves visible not to each other but to straight people, making themselves visible to a straight culture and a straight world that for most of recorded human history wanted to pretend that we did not exist. So your presence as a straight person at Pride is not an intrusion. It isn't a violation. It is – Partly and largely the point of pride is for straight people to see us for who we are and for also us to see each other and to have that day where we are in the streets and the majority, right? And when we are in the streets and we are the majority, we don't start straight bashing people. We don't get our revenge on all the gay bashers who when straight people are in the majority and all over the streets occasionally bash us. You are not going to be bashed. You're not going to be straight bashed. You may even get laid because bisexual ladies are a big part of pride. The only thing you really don't have to do is walk up to everyone you meet and announce loudly that you're straight. If you are straight and you are at pride, you are at the festival afterwards, you're on the streets during it, someone may assume that you are gay. You may be perceived to be gay if that makes you really uncomfortable. So uncomfortable you have to wear a great big straight but not narrow t-shirt to make sure everybody knows that you're not one of – them or us, maybe you should stay home. But if you're just there to have fun and to see it and to participate in that queer visibility thing by looking at us, which is what visibility is all about, then you're golden. Don't worry about it. Don't stress about it. Go to Pride. Have a blast. Also, one of the tech savvy at risk youth just slid me a note saying, Pride is a good place to meet cool straight women. Yes, it is. It is. There are lots of cool straight women with their gay male friends. 
at Pride. And I think it's really important, and I don't want to get woo-woo on all of you about what the gay rights movement uh, means to straight people or the LGBT civil rights movement means to straight people. But I actually do think that it means something to straight people and it can change straight people. It has really changed the lives of a lot of straight people too because when you go to Pride, whether you're a queer person or a straight person, here's what you see. You see – the Dykes on Bikes, you see the queer Christian organizations, you see the leather guys, you see the drag queens, you see the twinks shaking it on flatbed trucks, blasting dance music, you see the middle-aged regular roly-poly queers, you see the gay dads and uh, lesbian moms and their families. What you see is a million different ways to be queer. And I think the message in Pride for straight people and why I think straight people should go to Pride is that there should be more than one way to be a straight person too, right? That there is a script that's written for straight people about how you're supposed to live your life and who you're supposed to be. And that script is confining and, and stultifying and restricting and it's no fun. And straight people need to break out of that. And I think what a lot of straight people, whether they can articulate it or not, what they leave pride with after that first time is, wow, there's so many ways to be queer. Maybe I can conceive of perhaps – a different way to be straight. Hi, I am a 21-year-old straight female. I've been together with a guy who's 35 for about six months now, and I think he's really awesome, kind of the best boyfriend I've ever had. Shows up for me, calls me back, gives me whatever I want, but we've been having a lot of tiffs. It's like tone of voice, mood, misinterpretations and miscommunications for like a month and a half or so. And also the sex is totally like dropped off to the degree where I don't even really feel um, turned on by him or horny and I feel like I'm unsatisfying. I just wanted your advice if you think I should try and save this relationship. He is really great, but he's also a lot older than me and I kind of also feel like we're at different points in our life, and I, I don't really know what the best thing to do is or what the right thing to do is. I'd love any advice you've got. This isn't an uncommon question. Uh, it is a question, though, that always leaves me doubting whether the person asking it knows how to pull the blankets off them in the morning when they wake up. You know, you're six months into a relationship. After 1.5 months, it's been nothing, sounds like not nothing, but mostly fighting and you say tiffs and arguing and misunderstandings and miscommunications and misinterpretations and no sex. The sex is completely collapsed by six months. Pull the fucking plug. It's over. It's not working out. You can he, – he can be a good and decent guy and it can just not be meant to be. It's just not working. So what you do in that instance is you pull the blankets off and get out of bed. You say, thank you. That was a nice – relationship. I'll always remember it fondly. It's, we're clearly not meant to be together. It's over. We're breaking up. That's what you do. In an instance where we fight more than we have more fights than fun, that's what you do when you have more fights than fun and the sex is dead by six months. You thank the nice person and you go find the next person. Hey, Dan. I'm a new listener from the Midwest, early 40s, married to my wife for around 20 years. I started watching porn in my early teens, like a lot of people. My earliest viewing was some very innocuous 70s, 80s stuff that was extremely vanilla. Most of it ended with a blowjob and a facial. 
none of this stuff seemed to be the least bit misogynistic. Those early experiences with porn created a certain romance in my head with blowjobs and facials. And why not? Those women seemed to innocently love the pleasure they were giving. None of it seemed miserable or hateful or horrible. It really seemed hot and beautiful, honestly. I mean, that's the way I perceived it. That's the way I held on to it in my head. Well, I just took a college course about women and sexuality. I read books, I watched countless videos, and it seems like everything I've heard, both inside and outside of the college classroom, is that facials are perceived to be this horrible misogynistic thing. It's demeaning, it's degrading, and even my wife feels this way. When I brought it up, she acts like I want to commit some kind of spousal abuse, and that's just not the case. But the result is that this fantasy of mine is stuck in my head, and I can't let it out. Yet it's a core part of my sexuality. It's not like she won't give blowjobs, but when I come, she doesn't embrace that moment. It's more like she'd rather run screaming into the night. The fact that it's a turnoff for her ends up being a huge turnoff for me too. And it's, I don't know, it kind of makes an orgasm a bummer. Now, granted, an orgasm is like pizza, right? Even when it's bad, it's still pretty damn good. So maybe I shouldn't be complaining. I want to say, I don't hate women. I've seen plenty of porn, and I hate that stuff where the girls do oral, and they're clearly miserable, gagging, choking, puking, whatever else. Those facials are degrading. I don't watch any of that stuff. All I want is happy porn and a happy sex life with my beautiful wife. I don't want her to think I'm some kind of a creep. I want to believe when I'm coming that she's thrilled and turned on and not disgusted. I want her to embrace that moment. And in my head, that means a facial. I recognize that I'm the product of the porn that I watched all those years ago, and it is what it is. I'm not an asshole. I don't hate women. I certainly don't want to degrade my wife. And there you have it, Dan. Am I totally screwed? What do I do? I was asked once in front of a large crowd whether facials were sexy or degrading, and my answer was yes. Uh, Sometimes those things go together. Some people eroticize degradation. I don't think facials are always degrading. And to... The ladies out there who object to facials because splurt splurt in the face, you know, what is cunnilingus but a slow-mo facial? It's the application of bodily secretions, of genital secretions, of things that come out of your genitals but just very slowly painted on one thin layer at a time. But he comes up out of your crotch covered in your juices. It's just that his dick makes the juice – all in one go, right? The application process is more, it's more Jackson Pollock in his case than Georgia O'Keeffe, right? It's a big splat on the canvas as opposed to oils very carefully and deliberately applied. So for me as an observer from outside, but also as a cocksucker who has been on the receiving end of that splat, which I don't experience as particularly degrading, I kind of don't understand the the hang-up. But I get it. You know, heterosexual sex, men and women together, I disapprove. But whatever you people want to do, it does exist in a context of millennia, uh, tens of thousands of years of sexism and the degradation of women and male dominance and control. And it's really hard to tease out that sort of explosive water pistol gun-shaped thing going off in your face from all of that crap. But I think it can be done. And I think you, caller, it sounds like you've done it, that all those years you were watching facial porn and not violent, degrading, choking, gagging, salivating porn 
uh, that ended in a facial, but like happy to be sucking this dick porn, which you see a lot more of in gay porn. You see a lot more. I am so happy to be sucking this dick. And now this dick is blowing the load all over my face. And I'm so happy about that. You see that play out, I think, more in guy on guy porn, which is entirely divorced from this millennia of sexist domination and control and the degradation of women and this fear of women's sexuality, right? And this male desire to assert ownership. But some people eroticize all of that. Some women eroticize all of those feelings. You know, we eroticize sometimes our our biggest fears and cultural kind of nightmares. So there are women out there who can step into that role, uh, step into you know degradation and male dominance and female submission and wallow in it and get what they want out of it, which is that supercharged orgasm, and then jump back the fuck out of it and live as equals and not feel at all honestly and truly degraded or diminished by the eroticized degradation that they were able to, in an empowered way, enjoy. Maybe your wife isn't one of those women. Maybe for her, she's not able to experience that without walking away from that eroticized degradation without feeling, honest to God, degraded and diminished. And if she's that way, if she can't compartmentalize in that way, if she's not wired in a way where she compartmentalize it in that way and take pleasure from it that's her own pleasure and independent of your pleasure, then maybe this isn't something you get to do with the wife. I've always argued that your job as the blow-er is over when the blow-e is coming. You have pushed them over the falls. They are ejaculating. And where the cum goes is kind of up to you. You don't have to swallow. You can point the dick over your shoulder. You can let it hit the pillow. You can let it run in and out of your mouth. You can have a facial or not. Really, I do think that as both a blowjob giver and blowjob receiver, that it's up to the blowjob giver at that moment. That's the end of the blowjob is your orgasm. Where your cum goes, what happens to your cum, whether it's ingested or not, I think that is the blower's call. So if your wife isn't down with it, you're going to have to live without it. But there are lots of women who are down with it. And I don't think in every case where you see in porn or in reality, not that we you know, walking down the street see this very often, but I don't think in every case where someone is being treated to a facial – when a daddy loves a mommy very much and they get very close uh, and that happens, I don't think that that is always experienced as either erotic degradation or actual degradation. For some people, it's just the fun end of a blowjob. And for some people, it's the fun eroticized degradation that they don't carry then out into their real non I'm having sex right now life. So I don't think we should stamp facials with not okay, always degrading because Often okay, sometimes erotically degrading, not actually degrading. We have to judge it on a case-by-case basis and leave it up to the two individuals and their genitals and faces who happen to be involved. But ladies, again, cunnilingus, it's a facial. It's just a very slow-mo facial, but it's a facial. You know what his face looks like when he pulls it up out of your crotch? Looks a little bit like yours does about 20 seconds after he comes on you. Hey, Dan. Uh, I've been having a problem with my boyfriend lately. Uh, he has HIV. And um, we've been together for just over a year and a half. And uh, the first half of our relationship uh, wasn't long distance. We attended college together, but we fight so much. Like, we have huge domestic violence issues, but we actually love each other. That's the thing. It's crazy. But um, since we've been long distance, I work a job, 
and you know, I get paid pretty well. And um, I'll send him money. And the day that I send him money, he'll talk to me that day and maybe a couple of days later. But then he just stops communicating with me completely. And this leads me to, um, I've created a fake Facebook page and a fake Instagram page. And I disclose his HIV status, which I know is horrible. Um, and, you know, everybody's on Facebook and Instagram nowadays. And it gets a lot of traffic, a lot of traffic. I know I'm you know, demeaning his character and all that. But uh, what's the best way to get over him? Because I love him so much. I can't think about anything but him. And, you know, it's just become uh, really difficult not to do these things. I know what I do is very bad, disclosing his HIV status and, you know, all of that. But I think him not talking to me is even worse. Uh, should I just break up with him? You know, given that we've uh, had so many domestic violence issues, we've been to court a couple of times, actually, um, behind this mess. Uh, I, and I can't, I don't want any other guy. I don't, you know, I don't have the capacity to, you know, I don't have the sexual capacity to be with another guy. When I'm with another guy, my dick won't even get hard because I'm thinking about him. Um, I, you, you know, you would almost think that it's an obsession kind of, but you know, what's the best way to get over him? I've tried therapy and all that, but it's not working. And I really, really, really need to get over this guy. I'm posting stuff on Facebook right now as we speak. And, you know, a lot of people are saying things. They're calling his dad's phone. They're calling his phone. Uh, and I don't want to do that. I just want to get over him, but I, I, I seriously can. I know it's the relationship is bad for me and all that. I just don't know what to do at this point. Love is kind. Love is patient. Love is never jealous or boastful or rude or proud. Love isn't selfish or quick-tempered. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs that others do. Love rejoices in the truth, but not in evil. That's from the Bible. It's not, it takes a lot to get me to crack open a Bible and start reading verses aloud on America's Filthiest Podcast. But you did it. You got me there, caller. Whatever you feel for this guy, whatever you're experiencing, it isn't love and it isn't passion. It is a kind of rage and hatred. It is destructive. It is evil what you are doing. It is evil. And you need to stop. You need to end this relationship. You need to stop sending this person money. You need to pull down that Facebook page. You need to pull down that Instagram account. You need to get your ass to a therapist. You say you went to therapy and it didn't help. Get to a different, another therapist. Sometimes you need a second opinion. Therapy, counseling, it depends upon, you know, a certain alchemy between the person being counseled and the person doing the counseling. If you go to one person and it's not sparking, it's not working, that doesn't mean that therapy or counseling can't work for you. It just may mean that you went to the wrong counselor, that you two didn't click, that that person didn't work for you, but some other counselor or therapist could work for you. And you need help, sir. The relationship that you have is one of, it sounds like, mutual interdependence, but an imbalance of viciousness and anger and hate and abuse. You are abusing him and you need to stop. And what you are doing is actually criminal in many states. Fake Facebook pages, fake Instagram accounts. It's a kind of online harassment slash stalking that could get you into a lot of trouble. For, so just for your own self-interest, you need to knock this shit the fuck off. And you need to stop labeling your feelings for this person with love. 
as love. You can't you, you you are not allowed to use that descriptor because this is not love. This is an unhealthy obsession, this attachment, this compulsion that you feel that you're experiencing. And this lashing out to punish this person. Stop it. I can't reach through the headphones. I can't reach through your earbuds and grab you and shake you. I wish I could. Just listening to your call, I wanted to go take a shower after it was done. I ached for him. Whatever wrongs he's committed, he doesn't deserve this treatment. And there is no way to make this work, right? Stop fucking other people. Stop having sex at all right now. You're in a very desperately unhealthy sick place and you need to claw your way out of that place before you inflict yourself and your current condition on anyone else. Get thee to a therapist, go. A different one, another one. If that doesn't work, find another, another one. Get help. Glad you called, but get help. And you need help that I can't give you over the phone and through your earbuds. Hi, Dan. I'm the tech savvy at excuse. I'm a longtime Magnum listener. I'm a hetero mom of four boys living in the shitty, shitty Midwest, trying to make it a little less shitty. Um, two of my boys are from a previous marriage, the older ones, and two are from my current marriage. The second kid goes to church with his ex, my ex's parents, who are shitty, fundy Christian types, and they started aggressively targeting him for their beliefs because my first kid came out as an atheist last year. We have a secular household, as does their dad, and so I had never worried too much about the rabid Christian influence because I thought I could temper it. Like, I read them Bible stories alongside Greek and Roman mythology when they were little. Um, But son number two, who is now 10, says he believes this stuff and also believes, therefore, that gay is bad, sinful, against God, makes God a liar. Yeah, he came up with that on his own. I've tried playing out all the other nonsensical Bible no-nos that nobody pays attention to anymore, but so far, no luck. So what do I do? I've made sure he understands his beliefs don't give him the right to discriminate against others or treat them any differently, but it just really pisses me off that he believes this horseshit in the first place. How do I reason this out with a kid? We have a really sex-positive household. He's not uninformed about sex. We've talked extensively about how... Human relationships come in lots of different valid configurations, but I just don't know that he's quite ready for details. Should I let this be until he's older? Do I just keep insisting that his beliefs not affect his interactions with other people, or do I keep trying to talk him out of it? I don't feel like refusing to let him see the shitty grandparents is helpful in any way, but I don't know what else to do. We don't have any gay friends close that can help me out with this. Uh, My little sister is gay but doesn't live close, so she's no help. What do you do when your kid is a homophobe? Joining me by phone to help answer this question, the Right Reverend Gene Robinson. He's a retired Episcopal Bishop of New Hampshire, now working as a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, a Washington, D.C. think tank. He's also a friend of mine. And I'm a little in awe. I'm, I'm a little flabbergasted. We've never had uh, an Episcopal bishop come on the Savage Lovecast to field a question before. And thank you, Gene, so much for being the first and hopefully not the last. I love being the first because I love everything that you do and, and the things that you say. So I love joining you here. So thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I love you and I love everything that you do and say as well. So Mutual Appreciation Society convened <laughs> and... Meeting concluded. Now let's get to this woman's question. 
What do you do when your kid is a homophobe? You argue with a lot of people who are homophobes. It's my job in some ways. It's your job in many ways. But you you have conversations with many, many religious people who haven't been able to work their way out of that homophobic corner that so many people of faith have trapped themselves in. But how do you argue that with a 10-year-old? What would you say to this mother? What would your advice to her be? Well, this may not be what the caller wants to hear, but I um, I would say that the problem here is with the mother more than with the child. Uh, this is a this is a ten year old, right? Mm-hmm. And she's got a few years left in which not only um, uh, may she, but she really ought to be uh, guiding this youngster. Uh, first of all, I, I would say that it is not true that any religion is better than no religion. I, I think there are some people who think that, and perhaps um, she thinks it's not a big deal to have her um, um, ex-husband's uh, grand um, parents take take this kid to school, uh, uh, to Sunday school, and to and to church. But look, every denomination, every religion, uh, frankly, offers a different view of God, and some of those views of God are alarming. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. if the Roman Catholics who who teach that people like you and me are intrinsically disordered, all the way to the other end of, of uh, you know, to the Westboro Baptist Church, God hates facts. And, and frankly, what this kid is learning in the church that he's being brought to is just a kinder, gentler purveyor of the same message, that, that, there's, uh, that, that we are damaged goods and worthy of, of judgment and mistreatment. So, I, you know, I would challenge her when she says, um, you know, I don't think uh, stopping him from going with them uh, um, will do much. Well, I, you know, I, I, would, I would encourage her to rethink that. So, so your advice would be to uh, refuse to allow him to hang out with his paternal grandparents if they continue to take him to this church because it's damaging him. Yeah. So – I don't think it's uh, a bad thing, and she probably uh, can't stop it anyway. To um, to have this kid obviously know his grandparents, but having allowing them to take him to a church that's teaching him these things, um, uh, I find troublesome. I mean, uh, uh, she's a good mom. She wouldn't let her send him time for food or uh, go to an R-rated movie until he's older. Um, so why would she allow him to go to a church? That's going to teach him, uh, you know, exclusivity rather than inclusivity. Well, probably she's she's allowing it to happen because she doesn't want to go to war with her husband's or her ex-husband's parents, right? Right. That that this is going to create conflict if she goes to them and says, you may not take him. I object. She could go to court. She could prevent this. You know, if the hus- if the ex-husband insists that he wants his kid to go to this church with his parents, this could wind up being something that they have to hammer out the, the disagreement in front of a judge. They have to come to terms in front of a judge. Is that worth it? It might be, actually. Um, I mean, I think there are worse things. It, it depends on how strongly she feels about this. I mean, I would certainly try to go the non-combative route uh, of sitting down and saying, you know, I, I just feel really uncomfortable with, with what this 10-year-old is, is learning when he goes uh, to church with them. And is there is there some other way that we could uh, uh, work this out? Because, um, you know, this is a damaging thing for a kid to learn. And you know, you know what's, do you know what's most damaging potentially about it? This kid could be gay. 
He's 10 years old. I mean, that's exactly what I was going to say. It is entirely possible and not unheard of by any means that, that this kid is learning self-loathing as well as hatred of, of other LGBT people. So, I mean, uh, uh, this, is a, this is a really uh, important thing. And, and frankly, uh, I think it's worth uh, putting up a, a little bit of a fight for and, and, and certainly taking that risk because uh, this is going to affect him for a very long time. And if he should turn out to be a gay or lesbian, bisexual, or transgender, uh, uh, it, it is going to take him decades to dig out of this. She was, you know, her concern, and it's a it's a legitimate concern. She was worried about, you know, how his attitudes might impact others or impact his interactions with other people who might be queer. And she says her own sister is a lesbian, and I think she should definitely bring that up with her son. That you know, your aunt is a lesbian. But I think I agree with Eugene. The most material point here is that the person most at risk of a negative outcome from all of this bullshit he's learning is himself that you mom, you have to step up to protect your child because there is what a 3%, an 8%, a 9% chance that your kid is queer and the stuff that he's learning now could play out later in life with drug abuse, with self abuse, with, you know, overindulging in sex or, uh, suicide attempts, like homophobia and this kind of religious based Jesus hates me. Homophobia really hurts queer people when they, when they buy into it before they realize they're queer people. And if he's 10 years old and he has not hit puberty yet, by the time he realizes he's queer, if he's been allowed to eat all this bullshit, it could really harm your kid. And when he gets to be 35 years old and has his own son, uh, who turns out to be queer, uh, look at the damage he's going to do to this woman's grandchild. And, and this all figures into that. It is shaping him either as an LGBT person himself or uh, uh, quite possibly uh, the father to an LGBT person. And, I mean, this, this literally could have generations of effects. Okay, so just as, a, you know, for sake of argument, let's say he's a really precocious 10-year-old kid that he can cite chapter and verse, and he throws out there one of the clobber verses from the Bible, the Leviticus, the Romans, the Timothy, and, you know, a man should not lie with a man as he should lie with a woman. They both committed abomination. They should be put to death. Mom, it says that right there in the Bible. Gene Robinson, Bishop Gene Robinson, it says that right there in the Bible. What's the response when somebody throws that out on the table? Well, if an adult throws it out, or I suppose a, a precocious kid, I would say that we always have to consider Scripture in the context in which it was written. We're dealing with a two to three thousand year old text uh, in the case of Leviticus, closer to three thousand, and we are dealing with a uh, text in which words mean differently than what they mean today. Uh, Dan Helminiak, an author on this topic, has a great example where he talks about picking up. Um, a novel in the year 3000 that was written in the year 2000, but the game of baseball has been lost in that thousand-year period, and yet the novel describes someone as being out in left field. And knowing nothing about the game of baseball, you would think you would knew what that phrase meant, because you know what left is and you know what a field is. But unless you know the game of baseball, you don't understand that a, that a left fielder has become a a kind of metaphor for being out of the loop and isolated. So the meaning of words change. And in order to understand what the words of Scripture mean, uh, 
yes, you have to go back to the context in which they were written. And the bottom line is what those seven clobber verses are talking about are simply not what we are talking about today. The whole notion of sexual orientation is only about 140 years old. And you can't take a modern day um, psychological construct like that and plug it back into an ancient text and pretend that we're talking about the same thing. Bishop Gene Robinson, retired Episcopal Bishop of New Hampshire, now working as a senior fellow at the Center of American Progress, a Washington, D.C. think tank, and also a really good friend of mine. Gene, thank you so much for jumping on the phone today. I appreciate it so much. It's been great fun. Thanks so much. Hi, Dan. Uh, I just have something I'd love to get your advice on. My husband and I have been married for three years uh, and together for about six. And we recently decided to start practicing polyamory. Um, It wasn't, you know, to fix anything or anything like that. It's just because we both thought it sounded fun and we have a lot of love to give. So we decided to do that. And it's been going really great. We both have other partners. Um, He has a boyfriend who he really enjoys spending time with um, and who I'm actually friends with. Uh, And then I also have a boyfriend and I guess you could call her a girlfriend. She's more of a play partner. Um, But anyway, so everything seems to be going really well. Uh, The only issue is that my husband and my boyfriend, who um, I'm pretty committed to, my boyfriend as well as my husband, have started sort of being sort of sexually attracted to each other. And that totally makes sense. They're both really hot guys. (laughs) But I am sort of feeling a lot of jealousy around that. Um, You know, I don't want them to be together. Um, And it's kind of interesting because I don't really have jealousy in any other ways. You know, like they both have other partners and I don't experience jealousy about any of those. It's just the two of them being together. I don't know. Um, It just brings up something in me. And I've sort of talked to them both about it and, you know, they're both cool with not doing anything, but, um, you know, cause they're super great guys again, but, um, I don't know. I just feel, it makes me feel bad to have those feelings, you know, to have that sort of apprehension about the two of them being together, because if they want to, why shouldn't they? So I'm just wondering what you think about that, where you think that might be coming from. And if you think there's anything I can sort of do to make myself feel a little better about it. I'm not sure what to tell you to do if I were in your position, I would just want to watch him fuck. But that's just me. It seems to me that, you know, if we peel back the layers here and try to figure out what's going on, I I can only speculate as to what's going on in your head. But your boyfriend is yours. Your husband is yours. If your boyfriend and your husband were to get together and they had a tighter connection than you have with your boyfriend, you could lose your boyfriend to your husband. So it's just kind of plain old regular jealousy and fear it's just complicated by this idea that if you're poly and everybody has other partners, that jealousy is not something that you should experience or that it's somehow contrary to the whole poly idea and the poly self-conception that poly means you've unpicked the lock of jealousy. And that's not true. You have a boyfriend. Your boyfriend is yours. There's a certain kind of natural possessiveness and desire to own that comes with that and that you also have a husband who you possess isn't doesn't mean you can't experience this desire to possess your boyfriend and have him to be all for you and the prospect of sharing your all for you boyfriend with your all for you husband who isn't all for you because he has other partners just as you're not all for him because you have other partners is tripping some wire for you 
that can seem, when you examine the whole spectrum of what's going on here, a little irrational. But love is a little irrational. And I think what you should do is just keep being honest with all involved about your feelings, except that they do seem to be a little bit irrational. But what we get from our lovers and our partners, I think, what we have a right to expect, one of the reasons we love them is that this is somebody who loves us enough and values us enough that they are willing to accommodate our reasonable irrationalities and insecurities. So if these two together are willing to say, despite our established attraction, we are going to regard each other as kryptonite and off limits because we love you so much and we're both going to prioritize your insecurities and irrationalities here to make you feel secure and comfortable, take those yeses for an answer. They're both saying yes, yes. We're not lying to you about that about us being attracted to each other. We are attracted to each other, but we're going to prioritize you and your feelings and not act on it. And then who knows? Tiptoe up to it. Who knows? Maybe you can at some point as you become more comfortable with your connection with your boyfriend and your ongoing connection with your husband to allow them to play, maybe in your presence, maybe while you watch, or maybe they just each get to play with you at the same time and not touch each other. You can harness those feelings of jealousy and insecurity sometimes for their erotic power and potential. If you are the block that prevents them from being with each other, you can role play that out in a sexual scenario that might make being that block seem like something fun and sexy that you can add to the mix instead of it feeling like something unfun and unsexy and antithetical to the whole poly idea. Just spitballing it here. Good luck. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a 25-year-old woman, and I wanted to address a point that you've often mentioned, which is that there are some things that parents have the right not to know. And I couldn't agree more. My parents are Orthodox Jews, and my sex life is pretty kinky and pretty varied. They don't want to know about it. I don't want to tell them. And we all have a great relationship like this. Um, really, it's a super loving and it's a great relationship. But I'm a writer, however, and uh, recently my stuff has started getting published. And while it's obviously exciting, it's hard for my parents. Um, my material is very, very sexually explicit. Uh, there's a lot of King's BDSM. Um, and I also write a lot about uh, the collisions of Judaism and sexuality. Um, I sort of compare power dynamics in religion, submission, dominance, uh, with the power dynamics of Judaism sex. And my dad is a rabbi. He has devoted his entire life to Judaism. So this kind of stuff is really hard for him to read. Um, I told my parents they don't have to read my stuff, I, that I get it um, you know, lovingly. And they were pretty relieved and we we're all pretty relieved to operate in this way. But I'll be defending my graduate thesis pretty soon, which is excerpts from my first novel. Um, it's actually in a couple of days, and my family is going to be there in support. But uh, the material, like my other stuff, is really explicit. Actually, there's some hardcore S&M and people really enjoying it. My friends and professors are telling me that, you know, this is the material that I've written. This is my thesis. I shouldn't censor it. Um, but part of me feels like it's somehow disrespectful that I invited my family to attend and I'm going to read in front of them this really explicit material. On the one hand, um, I'm hoping to publish this book, so it's going to go out into the world in any case. But um, on the other hand, my parents could choose not to read the book or skip over certain themes, whereas at this defense, 
They can't choose not to hear me read the material if they're sitting there. And of course, they're not going to walk out because that looks so rude and they wouldn't want to do that. I'm realizing that I obviously should have spoken about this with them earlier before I invited them. But I guess on some level, I was avoiding telling them because I guess I really wanted them to be there um, and to see my work be read and publicly celebrated and to um, sort of have these two parts of my life, which are big elements, somehow be able to exist together. Uh, So I was curious as to what your thoughts were. Joining me by phone, Rabbi Jeremy Gerber is the rabbi of Congregation Oev Shalom, a synagogue in the conservative movement of Judaism located in Wallingford, Pennsylvania, outside Philadelphia. He's also the associate chaplain at the Crozer Chester Medical Center and at Widener University, and he is very involved in interfaith work. Rabbi Gerber also writes a blog called Take on Torah. Hey, Rabbi Gerber, how are you? Good. Good, thanks, man. How are you? Good. I just had uh, Bishop Gene Robinson on the show, uh, and we called him Gene throughout. Is it all right if I call you Jeremy? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Okay, Jeremy. Rabbi Jeremy, thank you for coming on the show. Um, this is crazy. I, I've never had a bishop and a rabbi on one pod. I've never had a bishop and a rabbi on any podcasts, let alone both at once. Uh, and I appreciate you coming on to, to talk about this. So sure. I'm honored. What is the Torah position? Let's like zoom out for a second on daughters who have kinky sex lives. You know, the Torah is often misunderstood as, as being kind of, you know, conservative lowercase C, um, with, with sex, and I think it really isn't. You know, I think that's actually kind of misunderstood. I'm not sure it has a lot of opinions on kinky sex per se, but it, it certainly has a lot of different sexual situations. You know, some incest stuff, some promiscuity, some some unusual examples. And I think we tend to to sort of brush a lot of that stuff under the carpet when when really it's pretty it's pretty prominent. It's there. We try to whitewash it a lot. We try to whitewash what the pro sex stuff. Yeah, I think so. Well, usually we only the, the stuff that you know as a Christian kid growing up in America, the Old Testament, right? You would hear about stone the daughter on the wedding night if she's not a virgin. You would hear about kill those fucking faggots, which is from the Old Testament, which I assume is still in the Torah somewhere. We don't hear the pro sex stuff in the Torah. Do you want to give us a couple of examples? Um, well, I mean, I think that you have examples like the uh, Reuben is the oldest son of of Jacob who sleeps with one of his father's wives, you know, mm-hmm. not his own mother, but one of his father's wives. Um, Traditional biblical Jacob. marriage, many wives keep going. Uh, well, he doesn't sleep. He doesn't, have, he doesn't marry her. He just sleeps with her, which his father isn't too thrilled about mm-hmm. and gets back at him on his deathbed. Um, and then you have Judah, his son marries off his one son to a woman and then another son to the same woman after the first son dies. And eventually he sleeps with her himself. So you have sort of interesting stories of, triangles, triads, and, 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 you know, all quads and all kinds of other, you know, groupings like that. I mean, I think that and it's not necessarily that the Torah is telling you it's great or it's terrible. It's just acknowledging that that's real life. And I guess that's kind of where I and particularly object to the way it's portrayed, because I think that the Judaism, the Torah, the Bible, it's just often saying it is, that this is life. And it's not really trying to judge it. I think that judgment that we add, uh, you know, that comes from, from either Catholic teaching or sort of fundamentalist Jewish, you know, orthodoxy. It's this judgment that's sort of odd. The Torah is really just trying to say, look, folks, this is how people are. This is what they do. But, but there, are, get over it. there is stuff in the Bible that says this is how people are and you should stone them to death. Right? Yeah. And in the Torah. That's true. I'm not, I'm not making that up. 
No, no, I'm not, and I'm not saying you're making it up, but I think that, you know, I actually, to quote you, um, something that I really loved in American Savage, you know, you, you, you mentioned there that at the very beginning of Genesis, the, the Bible puts forth two different views of creation, which right off the bat is saying, hey, folks, think, be an active, involved person in this story. Don't just take what I tell you. You know, the Bible is facetious in a lot of these things. The Bible will tell you the most important thing is to preserve life. That's the most important law. And then the next verse will say, oh, and stone somebody who collects wood on Shabbat, on the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. That's obviously facetious. That's telling you they can't both work. Right. They can't. They can't both work. So you're obviously supposed to be an involved person. Think for yourself and have an opinion. Okay, so let's let's think for ourselves about this woman's predicament. She wanted our opinions about it. Her dad's a rabbi. Uh, yeah. You're a rabbi. So I thought, hey, this makes perfect sense. Let's have a rabbi advise this girl about what to do about her rabbi dad, who is coming to her the dissertation defense where parts for dissertation are to be read aloud that reveal certain aspects of her sex life and her kinks and desires that she might not want dad to know about and dad might not want yeah. to know about. So right. as a rabbi, what would you advise her to do about her rabbi dad? So the first thing I should say is there is a difference between orthodoxy and conservative Judaism. So, you know, she'll know that. And and I guess your listeners should know that as well. Um, You know, that there is sort of a more traditional, you know, aspect events to the orthodox world. But I have to say the fact that she's even that they're willing to come to support her, that they have some inkling, some sense of what she's talking about is really commendable. You know, and I kind of think she might owe it to them to say something ahead of time. Like, look, I, I so appreciate your support you should, you kind of might know that this is stuff that's, that's going to come out and just, just to sort of be accepting of it. You know, I, I think it's not, it's not easy to hear. I don't know that they're going to love hearing all the details of it, but I think the fact that they're as supportive as they are is pretty commendable. I do too. I do think you're right though. She should knock it into their court and say, if you come to the defense of my dissertation, you know, there's some autobiographical stuff, there's, you know, writing that I've done that's going to be read out, and you're going to find out things about me that parents might not want to find out about their kids. So if you decide to come, if you choose to come to the actual defense right. instead of just the party after, you're going to begin to know things you can't unknow. So if you don't want to know those things, don't come. Give them the option of that's not really coming. Nice. And even maybe saying to them, look, I want you to know, I, I really appreciate the support. Like, even if you don't come, you still get credit. You know, like, right. you're going to get credit for having said that you wanted to be there. And I'm just going to be honest with you. There's some stuff that you may not want to hear. And I'm proud of it. I'm not embarrassed about it. It's it's, it's who I am. But I, I really, you know, the fact that you even consider coming, despite that it's way outside your comfort zone, is totally great. Um, but you should also know now that you've said that you would be willing to come, I'm giving you an out. <laughs> but and then the follow up, the addendum after that is if you choose to come, this stuff that you're going to find out that you can't unknow, you can't get in my face about it. You can't yell at me about it. You can't shame me about yes. it. You can't do anything about it. And I don't want to no crosswords, no nothing. You are opting in to this knowledge. And once you have this knowledge, there's no retaliating for it. Right. There's no scolding exactly. or shaming. So if you're here and you hear it, Eat it. That's what you got. My mom, when the kid came out, my book about uh, adopting my son, which also went into my childhood and my coming out and a lot of my sexual experiences, uh, you know, my journey toward, you know, partnership and parenthood, which, you know, for most of us and myself included, even gay parents is also a sexual journey, right? To find the person you want to be with the rest of your life. My mom asked me when she got the book, is there anything in here that you don't (laughs) think I would want to read? And I was like, oh, yeah. And she handed me the book and said, take those pages out. 
And I gave her a redacted copy of the kid with some like with a chapter, I think, entirely torn out of the book. And she was like, thank you and never read it. And so that's the approach I think you should take with your parents. You're going to read chat. You're going to find out chapters of my life. If you come to this thing that you might not want to know, you have the option of not reading those chapters, not hearing them read to you by not coming to my dissertation, come to the party. And, and, and like Rabbi Gerber says, you get full credit for the impulse to come. <laughs> I won't hold I it against right. you and if you don't come and you don't hold it against me if you do. Right. If you do and you hear stuff. And I think to say, look, you know, if you want to show that you are involved in my life and you're interested in my work, I can give you a redacted version. I can give you a redacted copy of some of what I've written and just know that like that that's that's great and you're getting you're giving me, you know, a sense you're involved. I also think it helps when you talk to your parents about these things to say, I'm sure there are things about your sex life that I don't know and you don't want me to know and I appreciate you're not having told me. Now that's right. that's part of the child parent compact right there. That's a two-way street. Things about me you don't want to know, things about you that you assumed I didn't want to know and thank you mom and dad for not telling me. That there's this zone of privacy and this zone of, you know, editing that, that parents and children do with each other. And that's not hiding and that's not unloving. I think that's very loving. I think that's right. They're trying to be in an honest relationship with one another. I think that honesty goes a long way. But only so far. Honest but without disclosing everything. And one of the things you're honest about is that you don't disclose everything. You don't tell each other everything. Right. Because there's certain... but you're honest about that. Exactly. Right. But there are certain mental images that parents spare children and children spare parents. Right. Right. Rabbi Gerber, any, uh, anything else you want to say? Do you listen to the show? You said you're a fan? I do. I listen. I'm a Magnum subscriber. <laughs> um, would you believe? Yeah. My, my wife got me into it. She's been, been reading the columns since The Village Voice in New York. Um, she got into it in college. And then she got me into the Lovecast. I do. I listen every week. Before we let you go, this is such an opportunity. While we have you on the phone... Uh, 30 seconds, Jesus is not the Messiah, prove it. Prove it. Um, I, I don't know. I feel like the burden of proof should be on the one trying to prove that, he's, <laughs> that he is. I feel like. You win. <laughs> That's all you have to say. I, I completely yeah. agree with you. My, my brother facetiously always likes to say, when the Messiah someday eventually arrives, we will say to him or her or them, is this your first visit or your second? And that'll kind of prove it for all of us once and for all. I look forward to that day. I hope it's a them. I hope it's a boy band when they show up. <laughs> that does sound awesome. Yeah, no, I um, I'm, yeah, I'm more of a messianic era, not a person kind of guy. And it's just we're going to all have to work to making this place a little bit better and 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 safe and, and good for everybody. And that'll feel like a messianic era. But look, I got nothing against Jesus. I think he seems. I, mean, I think he was a, a, a terrific prophet. I think he had some great great teachings and refocused people who were obsessed with sacrifice to say, be a good person, just treat people well. You know, I think it's the followers who messed everything up and turned it into, you've got to be God or the son of God, and he's got to be flawless and perfect when his teachings, like most of the biblical teachings are about imperfection. Let's just be accepting of the fact that we're not flawless. We're doing our best here. We're trying to be good to other people and, and, and like live and let live. Words to live by Rabbi Jeremy Gerber. Uh, he's the rabbi of Congregation Ohev Shalom, a synagogue in the conservative movement of Judaism in Wallingford, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much. It was really fun chatting with you. Thank you so much, Dan. I'm a huge fan. You're doing great, great work. Thank you for having me on. Thanks so much. Talk to you again. You're going to be our yes. go- you're going to be our go to rabbi after this. You know, you're going to be our on call rabbi. I would love it. I'm here. Reach out. Hi, Dan. Um, I have a dating sort of etiquette question. I'm going to try to sum it up as quickly as I can. Basically, I met this guy on OkCupid. I'm 24. He's 33. 
really amazing connection at first. We hit it off talking every single day on the phone, on Skype for hours. It was crazy. And then we decided to go on our first date. And prior to the day, he talked about how, I don't know if I'm not going to be able to stop kissing you. I can't wait to do whatever with you. And then we go for the date and nothing, like nothing, no sexual advances. I was pretty open. I wasn't too forward, but just like hinting, like, hello. Um, I know I could make the first move, but I think here's a 33-year-old man who's lived life longer than I have. I just kind of expected him to make a move. We went out for dinner, and then as I said goodbye to him, there was nothing again. We got leftovers. He texted me when he was outside of my apartment. He said, oh, I forgot my leftovers. So here I am thinking, oh, he just wants a kiss, wants you to bring him his leftovers. Like, I like this. I like where this is going. So I run downstairs, bring him the leftovers, <laughs> and he just takes it and says, thanks. And in my head, I'm like, what is happening? And then he goes home. I thought, I don't know how that went. He did tell me he really wants to take things slow, and he does have very bad IBS, and he's very self-conscious about that, and he was having stomach problems that night. We've been talking every day since for hours, and not as romantic. So I'm just wondering, why did he drop the ball and not make a move? What is the deal with that? And did he really need his leftovers? I mean, come on. Use your words. And not on me. Use your words on him. You're still in touch with him. You're still talking all the time. All you got to say is, I kind of expected you to kiss me the other night and that didn't happen. Why not? And then brace yourself for the answer because you might not like the answer. Clearly, you wished he had kissed you. You would still like to kiss him. The reason he may not have kissed you hopefully has something to do with the IBS. <laughs> Presumably, he's not kissing you at that end of his GI tract. But the reason he might not have kissed you is because he didn't really want to kiss you. That what he established on the date was that he liked you fine as a person but wasn't particularly attracted to you. That might be the answer that you get. But he's the only one who has the answer that you need. And you'll have to risk getting that answer, as painful as it might be to hear. But in risking getting that answer, you also risk getting an answer you might rather hear. Like, I was waiting for you to kiss me because the last time I went on a date with a girl and I kissed her or went to kiss her, she didn't want to kiss me and now I'm a little gun shy. So I was going to let you take the lead. Maybe you'll get that answer. But you're not going to get any answer until you ask the right person. And that person isn't me. It's him. Well, hello. Because I finally have something I need to talk to somebody about. <laughs> um, I just tripped over an email. It was in are shared, my husband's and my shared email in the sent. I was just looking to see if an email I had sent to the adoption, puppy adoption agency had gone, and there was one from uh, her boyfriend saying, please stop contacting my girlfriend. Seems like you guys really do have feelings for each other, and uh, but it's not helping, and please stop. And then my husband wrote back, I'm sorry, I will stop. And that was it, and sent it, like, real brief. But my husband has plans to go to uh, where apparently she lives, because, of course, then I looked up Facebook, you know, the boyfriend's name, and then her, found her, and then looked her up. And so he's, my husband's planning to go visit his old high school buddies, uh, which happens to be in the same town Uh, as he lives. So... 
I'm going to talk to him tonight and I might just get it out in the open, but where do I go from here? <laughs> um, <clears throat> I'm doing the blame myself. We have two kids, five and ten. Um, my husband really needs to sleep, as we all do, of course, but he really needs it, and so I tend to spend nights in with my youngest boy because I toss and turn a bunch, and um, we've been together for 23 years, and so the fire is, I mean, we love each other, but, you know, it's not like the 20-something-year-old girl that he's talking to, of course. And I wish I could just be open. <laughs> I would love to be open to it, but it, it hurts pretty much. Yeah, things are good, and I appreciate you calling. I just, like, I need to talk to somebody and dial the number that came to my mind. No problem. And, um, yeah, um, but we had a really good talk with my husband, and it was more of like a sexting uh, affair. Mm-hmm. And I guess the question that lingers that we both still are struggling with that maybe you would want to um, take on a little bit is like how do you go about having a friendship? Like his his comments are are I would like to have girlfriends. I'm like yeah, but <laughs> girlfriends that you want to fuck is a different thing, right? Than than yeah, girlfriends that. Than friends who happen to be girls. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. But so then, do you just cut those people out of your life, or do you figure it out how to to walk that line? Because, like you always say, and I and I, I totally acknowledge, like you want to fuck other people, you want to, you're attracted to other people, like that's a given. You can't deny that. But to like have it be the secretive communication that goes on, and then is really hurtful, and you know it's going to be hurtful when it it is or if it's ever you know found out then right then that that doesn't work so well can i can i ask you a weird and intrusive question okay you say you called and said you're going to confront your husband about it later that same day so i assume that already happened you guys are obviously already yeah. talking about it and yeah. this is the weird question that it's going to seem like a left field question and maybe will make some people mad at me after you and your husband had this talk did you fuck yes and was it amazing? Yes. <laughs> Isn't that from yeah. Mars a little bit? This often happens, and this is something that people don't acknowledge or talk about, that sometimes when the, when the affair comes out or the emotional affair comes out, there is this desire on on both parts to acknowledge or reestablish or reaffirm this sexual connection that, 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 you know, the, the two of you or the two people in some other relationship that has been similarly impacted have with each other. There's this sudden passionate desire to reclaim each other and not just from the person who's been wronged, but also from the person who got caught out. So your experience that this came out, you talked to him about it and then you guys fucked like monkeys. That's not <laughs> uncommon. Right. And it's, but it's rarely acknowledged or talked about that. There's something about allowing for these attractions to other people, even allowing for some minor non-physical quote unquote betrayal or walking right up to the line. And then it all, and then throwing that out there and acknowledging it, that that can be good for a relationship. 
Yeah. He walked up to something that was potentially very damaging to the relationship. He walked close to the line if he didn't, you know, step over it and c- commit an infidelity. But there's something about walking to that line that has brought you both closer together. Yeah, definitely. It probably, and I, yeah. You, you guys should read Esther Perel's book. I, I've mentioned it many, many times. I'm going to mention it again Mating in Captivity. And oh, yeah. she talks about how often. You know, when we're in a long-term relationship and you guys have been together more than two decades, just as I've been together with Terry more than two decades, mm-hmm. but sometimes you desire your partner most or strongly or again when you're seeing them through someone else's eyes. When you're at a party yeah. or a dinner party or out in a bar and you see the way someone else is looking at your partner and wanting them, it's suddenly – you're seeing them freshly. You're seeing them anew. You're seeing what's so desirable about them. What drew them to you in the first place? Totally. And you know, I actually like when we were making love like this week because there's been multiple times, which is unusual for us. So, you know, in these twenty-something years, um, I actually went into her head and like felt this attraction as though I were, you know, I were her. And how desirable he is from her perspective. And you're not experiencing and, it as a lie, right? You don't feel like he's lying to you with his body, trying to mollify you, or, right. or, or, or you know, he is clearly into you and reconnected with you. And yes. in a way, you have this sexting slash emotional affair to thank for it. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah. I agree totally. So, the, so I think going forward, that the conversation that you and your husband need to have is this: this desire for others. How do we make sure that it's safely contained, that it's allowed yeah. to exist, because it has benefited us both and, and, and benefited our connection, our commitment, our marriage? But how do we make sure that it's always in harness, that it's right. that it's in yoke, that it's not going to get out of control and destroy our marriage and destroy our family? How can we let it happen? Without letting it destroy. And I mean, by let it happen, I don't mean fuck other people if that's not okay with you or him. But I mean, let the, those attractions to other happen. Even those right. flirtations with others happen and you should be able to have them too. Yeah. But then we bring that home and that energy and what that sparked in both of us. We bring that home and we throw that on the table and then we fuck the shit out of each other. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah, I was, thinking, I was thinking of ways to do that. Like, I, you know, I've heard so many different situations that people have called into you and I'm like, I, I'm not, I can't go there. Like I just, those things, but I thought, I mean, as simple as going dancing and like dancing with other people and kind of having that happen like it used to back in the day. Or as unsimple <laughs> as going to a sex uh, party, a sex club, a swingers event and only being with each other physically. You know, there's a lot of people right. who go to those erotically charged environments, swingers, clubs, sex parties, play parties if people are into BDSM. They go with their partners. Other people are doing crazy stuff. They may get hit on by other people, but they only fuck each other. But they're drawing all this sexual energy out of the attention that's paid to them, of the attention they can pay to others. That They find a way to enjoy that, that sense of being desired by others, which can not just make you feel desirable again, but make you desirable again in the eyes of your partner who may have right. taken you for granted a bit. I'm so glad I called you back. Me too. This is awesome. Because <laughs> your, your, your call was one of those calls that was just so heartbreaking. Like, listen to you. It was so raw, so like, you know, you were so, you were reeling in that moment of discovery. And I think a lot of listeners are probably just aching for you and thinking no good could possibly have come of this. And I just had this sense that if you did go to him and talk about it, if there was really a love connection there still between you and your husband, 
that there was a chance that this is where you, I really, I just wanted to call, literally, I wanted to call you back. And the only question I wanted to ask you, the, 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 the primary, the first question I want to ask you was, <laughs> did you guys fuck? Yeah. Yeah. Now yeah, let's game did. out for just a second. What if he'd fucked her? Right. Is that something you could have gotten past and forgiven him for and fucked the shit out of him after discovering? What if he had? Yeah. Um, yeah. Because, and, and I probably have to thank you for that, actually, Dan, because, you know, you say, like, if you're going to say that's a game, it changed, game ender, then game's going to be over for almost every marriage in the country anyway. So um, I think it would have been a similar thing because really we actually even talked about, like, it's not... It's not so much the physical act of it, it's, it's all the emotional connection that is really the threat to me, right, or to each other. And what's being, you know, when people define an infidelity as a, you know, always a relationship extinction level event, sometimes people look at someone who committed infidelity and they feel so intensely betrayed because, oh my God, what you were throwing away was our family and our our children's home and our, our whole future. And so I'm angry at you for throwing all, for risking all of that. But all of that's yeah. only a risk is if, if you define an infidelity or a flirtation as a relationship ender, if you don't define right. it as that, then your partner wasn't necessarily risking those things by having a flirtation or even having an affair. One last right. question for you that I want to ask, and this is a little okay. personal. <laughs> um, I Googled your area code. I'm not going to say where you live, <laughs> But it is a more conservative, rural-ish kind of place. Yeah, this whole sex party thing, I'm like... <laughs> You'll have to yeah. get in a car and drive. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're yeah, Seattle well, or Portland or yeah. whatever. Here we go. There's <laughs> an upside to that, though, because if you do get in a car and drive a long way, you're not going to run into your parents at the swingers club. Right, no. I, I don't imagine so. <laughs> all, all, most swingers are parents, but nobody's swingers are parents. Sorry, sometimes you walk into a swingers club and there's mom and dad. Uh, yeah, no worries. Do the, do the, would the same apply to you? Is your husband not sexist? Is there not a sexist double standard at play? If you had engaged in the same kind of flirtation, if he had discovered all of this on your phone or in your email account, would he be where you are now? Would he be as understanding, forgiving, accepting, and, and yeah, horny? absolutely. Okay, good. Just wanted absolutely. to make sure that that was yeah. fair and egalitarian because yeah. going forward – when I say harness this stuff, because look at what it's brought to you guys in just the few days since this disclosure. You guys are reconnecting. You're really talking. You're being really honest with each other. You're fucking the shit out of each other. Uh-huh. It brought out good stuff in your marriage. It did. It did. Yeah. So instead yeah. of saying now that you can never, ever do this again, never have a flirtation again, never sexed with anyone else ever again, like say there's a line at which you can walk up to, but – disclosure, honesty, don't walk past that line. And I get to walk up that line too. Right. Right. All right. Well, maybe we'll see you at a sex party someday. <laughs> I don't think the kind of sex party you two would go to would be the kind that Terry yeah. and I would go to. But I'll be with you there in spirit. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a 52-year-old street guy. My wife and I have been married for 25 years, and we have two wonderful teenage children. Throughout our marriage, sex has been consistently amazing, and it's been one of the things that has held us together through some very rough patches. Over the past several years, however, a trend has been developing that is starting to really bother me. Uh, When my wife and I have a disagreement about something, anything from big stuff like, you know, kids' uh, issues and uh, money to trivial things like household chores, uh, she tends to withhold sex. 
And I have a slightly stronger sex drive than my wife anyway, so going without sex is no big deal for her. But for me, it's a very big deal. My mental health suffers, and I find myself resorting to porn, which is a poor substitute for the real thing. This pattern has become rather routine with us. It's almost as if my wife is using sex as a trump card to win every argument, or even as a tool to manipulate me into agreeing with her on every issue. I hate to use the phrase pussy whipped, but that is sort of how I feel. So Dan, uh, how can I change this dynamic in our relationship? Getting my sexual needs met elsewhere while it has crossed my mind, it feels like a slippery slope to divorce. Thanks a lot, Dan. You say this is a new pattern. So we can infer, it's obvious, that this didn't used to be the case. That in the past when you guys would fight and things were unresolved and she was still mad at you and you were still mad at her, that you would fuck anyway. That you would meet in a neutral place and set the argument aside and fuck the shit out of each other and then resume arguing in the morning or after a shower. But something's changed, right? Just in the last few years, this new development. When you're in conflict about whatever, chores, child rearing, whatever else, she withholds sex until you cave, until you give in, until you tell her she's right. That would be pussy whipped, right? She controls you with sex. She's got you by the nads. You could talk to her about this. You should talk to her about this. And I think this would be the best approach. You say to her, our sexual connection has always been really important. And we both prioritized it. We both treated it as something important that kept us together. And we didn't leverage it against each other. And now it feels like we are or you are leveraging our sexual connection against me to get your way. And we didn't used to do that. That wasn't a card that either of us really ever played. And she's playing it now. You're playing it now, honey. And I, and I want to know why. Like sometimes I'm giving in, uh, letting you have your way, not because I agree, not because I want to give in, but because it's the only way to get my dick back into your pussy. And so if this is the new thing, I'd like to know why. And I'd like to point out that it's, you know, striking at the foundations of our connection. And we have a good and solid loving marriage, but sex really kind of cemented us. And maybe she's able to play this card now because she's less interested in sex than she used to be. Been together 25 years. You have two teenage kids. Maybe she's less horny. And so when you're in conflict, you know, her horniness doesn't override whatever resentment uh, may be lingering about the conflict that, you know, then carries her into that neutral place where she can fuck the shit out of you anyway, even while something's unresolved. So it could be that. Or it could be she just stumbled into this thing that works and she's not even aware of what she's doing. Just one day she refused to have sex with you or a few days refused to have sex with you because she was still mad and eventually you caved and she knew it was caving. She recognized it as caving for sex, not that you suddenly came around to her side and she had a eureka moment. And it could have been subconscious, that eureka moment. She could have stumbled into this way to control her husband without it being a conscious series of choices or an effort or a strategy or a stratagem to control you. So use your words, just like the last caller. You're just going to have to use your words and talk this out with the wife. But make sure that she understands this isn't just about your desire to blow loads inside of her or beside her or on her or near her, but your desire to make sure that you're both working to preserve the sexual dimension of your relationship that's always been so important to your connection and is one of the things, one of the primary things that you can credit for your successful 25-year and counting relationship. And that's not something that either of you should be wanting to consciously or subconsciously discard at this stage in your relationship. Hi, this is 
for uh, the caller, the married woman, his husband is tearing up her pussy every time he eats her out. Uh, bleeding raw labia sounds horribly painful and not like the smallest little thing. You know, Dan, you basically told her to tiptoe around her husband's ego in fear of being treated sexually unequal again, when the fact of the matter is that neither of them had any way of knowing that his beard was going to do that to her pussy. The logistics of that has nothing to do with anyone's ego, and it shouldn't be treated like it does. If her husband cares about her, he should not want oral sex to result in painful, bleeding labia, she should tell him that she's been dealing with daily bleeding abrasions on the most sensitive part of her body in fear of him going back to treating her sexually unequal again. And see what he has to say about that. Rather than treating him like a victim who made the teensiest, teensiest mistake, which A, is not realistic, and B, asks zero empathy of him. Hi, this is a comment for the 35-year-old lady from Texas who's having her reproductive canal eroded by her husband's beard stubble, which is a kind of a cool look that she shouldn't have to get rid of. So the ideas of shaving our beard are not the best. My three solutions from most expensive to least expensive are get a Mexican wrestler's mask. It's all set, very attractive. A ski mask. Or go to Goodwill, buy a turtleneck, pull it up under your ears, and cut a hole in it for your tongue. Hi, my name's Hannah. I actually don't have a question. I wanted to tell you a really quick story. I was on the bus this morning listening to your podcast, and it was an episode about consensual anal sex. I had my headphones plugged in, and it was a totally silent bus at 7 a.m. in Australia, and it was packed with business people. And actually sat there for the entire bus ride and listened to your podcast and you were quite vocal and it was amazing and then I got off the bus and I realized that my headphone jack wasn't actually plugged in and I had been playing on speaker to an entire bus full of people your podcast about consensual anal sex and I kept wondering why everybody was staring at me for the bus ride and that turned out to be why. Before we go, I want to apologize to the furry community. Last week or a couple of weeks ago, we took a call from someone concerned about a young friend who is doing uh, commissioned drawings of furry sex scenarios for strangers on the internet. And I used the term ferverts over and over again, furry and pervert, fervert. And apparently this is an anti-furry slur. I'd only ever heard it used by furries affectionately. And so that's the way I was using it. I've, you've heard me call myself a pervert on the show a million times. I am pro pervert. So my apologies to any furries out there who were fur hurt by that comment. It'll never come out of my mouth again. Also, uh, quickly looking at Twitter, Paul Research at Paul Research writes, I spend my spare time stripping wallpaper off the ceiling to the accompaniment of fake Dan Savage's Savage Lovecast. It helps. Hashtag steam. Happy to help Paul. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow the right Reverend Gene Robinson on Twitter at Bishop G. Robinson. And check out Rabbi Gerber's blog, Take on Torah, at takeontorah.blogspot.com. 
Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.